Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask you to please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Did you hear that the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision from 1973, which supposedly gave women a constitutional right to murder their unborn children, was overturned on Friday? Did you hear about that? Writing for the Supreme Court majority, Justice Samuel Alito said the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision was egregiously wrong from the start. The arguments, he says, were exceptionally weak and so damaging that they amounted to, quote, an abuse of judicial authority. On Friday, the justices of the Supreme Court corrected the wicked ruling from 1973. But the fight for the lives of the unborn is not over. The Reverend Franklin Graham said, Roe v. Wade, passed 49 years ago, has resulted in the deaths of over 63 million innocent children in this country. Sadly, this decision by the Supreme Court is not an end to abortion. It pushes the battle back to the states. What do you think about abortion? Is the murder of babies in their mother's wombs satanic? Is this the height of spiritual warfare? is abortion of the devil. This is the pinnacle of spiritual warfare, along with all the other issues that coincide with the sexual revolution, which now must be addressed by each of the 50 of America's United States. Each state in our union must decide for themselves the sexual debauchery that they will tolerate in their state and what they will reject. The sexual revolutionaries, however you know, they will not stop until they get abortion on demand where they live along with the full array of immorality bound up in the letters LGBTQ+. What does this mean for America, friends? What does this mean for America? We are a nation divided against itself. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. The sexual revolution and specifically the abortion issue will be the end of our unity in our 50 states. America will not be saved. Just like the Southern Baptist Convention, America is unsavable. Sinking ships, you could say. And yet, today, we rejoice, do we not? We rejoice. Because on Friday, an acknowledgement was made. Justice was had. That means that babies' lives will be saved. In this moment of justice and salvation, we rejoice. But I want you to be very mindful that the justice and salvation provided on Friday is a justice and salvation on physical terms. It is not justice and salvation perfectly on spiritual terms. Do not miss the fact that murdering the pre-born is satanic. Spiritual warfare is raging and Satan is having his way in the hearts of millions of your fellow Americans. And yet this is exactly the kind of spiritual warfare God has specifically equipped Christians to stand firm against. Misguided teenage girls and sexually promiscuous middle-aged women don't need access to abortions, do they? They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need salvation, the Holy Spirit, and the full armor of God. They need less sexuality and more spirituality, identity, even identity found in Christ. That's what they need. You're at Ephesians 6.10? Perfect. This is where Paul says to us in the text, finally, finally, I'm making my concluding thought to you, finally, after all that I've said, finally, after teaching you Calvinism in chapter 1 and refuting Arminianism in chapter 2 
After revealing the mystery of the gospel in chapter 3 and the manner of godliness in chapters 4 through 6, after discussing all the certainty of your calling in Christ and the conduct of a Christian required, the beliefs in chapters 1 through 3 and the behaviors in chapters 4, 5, and 6, doctrine and duty, riches and responsibilities, which includes for each member of our church that you are found growing up together to a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness which belongs to Christ. After all of this, in the power of the Spirit to the glory of God, Paul says, finally, finally, Christians, know this. You are engaged in spiritual warfare. God alone is your strength. He has provided for you spiritual armor. Put on the armor of God and stand firm against all the schemes of Satan. You see it there in the text as we read together from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, It strikes me that conflict is the principal feature of the Christian life this side of heaven. He says victory needs conflict as its preface. He goes on to say, You must either be overcome of evil, or you yourself must overcome evil, one of the two. You cannot let evil alone, and evil will not let you alone. You must fight. And in the battle, you must either conquer or be conquered. He said, Spurgeon did, a Scotch officer to the Highland Regiment, when he brought them up in front of the enemy, said, Lads, there they are. If ye do not kill them, they'll kill ye. Do you know the conflict that's raging all around you? Do you know the spiritual warfare in which you are engaged even now? Do you know the battle that has been raging since humanity rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden? Do you know spiritual warfare? If you're just joining us at Community Bible Church, I would encourage you to go back and listen to all the messages in Ephesians for the last two years, beginning in chapter 1, so that you can have the context set for you in regard to this battle where Paul's telling us today, finally, in the text. You need to understand the context of chapter 6, verse 10, because Paul here in the text is talking to believers, to Christians, to people who are truly saved, 
Not fake, phony believers, but people who are truly saved. He's talking to those to whom God has actually given ears to hear and eyes to see. Ears is an acronym we like to use at Community Bible Church that comes right out of the text of Ephesians chapter 1. Ears, E-A-R-S, election, adoption, redemption, and salvation. That is what God has given to those of us who are here who are believers in Jesus Christ. Salvation, you see, is a free gift. It's a free gift that is so great that whoever receives it never rejects it. It's an impossibility for you to throw away what God has placed upon you. And it's a free gift that immediately puts you in war, in the fight, in the front line of spiritual warfare on this earth. Our enemy is not the Ukraine, nor is it Russia, nor is it Biden. Our enemy is Satan and his minions. In this context, Paul says to all of us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, having said finally, he says now, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. At verse 14, Paul says, stand firm, therefore. Offer resistance, hold your ground, put up a fight, and keep the critical territory, the critical spiritual territory in your heart and your mind that's already been won because of the salvation that God has placed on you. And from this point, Paul explains the greater details of the full armor of God, which he has commanded believers to put on in verse 11, take up in verse 13, and now stand firm in verse 14. And so we see here in the text, Paul explains six spiritual armor expectations required to stand firm against the schemes of Satan. He amplifies six assets of God's armor, which demand our action and demonstrate our spiritual warfare success. So then what six assets of God's armor demand our action and demonstrate our spiritual warfare success that we already have victory? You see them there in the text. The first two are in verse 14. Number one, the belt of truth. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. Number three is the shoes of the gospel of peace in verse 15. Number four is the shield of faith in verse 16. And today we will contend with verse 17 and look at numbers five and six. Five is the helmet of salvation. Six is the sword of the Spirit. These six assets of God's armor are required for spiritual warfare success. I say they're not only required that you take up and put them on, but please notice first, they have already been supplied. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Today, we will finish our spiritual armor conversation by focusing on five and six. And brothers and sisters, I ask you this. How strenuously do I need to make the point to you You are responsible to take on and put this armor on that God has supplied for you. Spiritual warfare is happening all around. It's happening right now. And the questions go like this. When you think about the belt of truth, is your life secured by truth? Are you a truth teller? Do you tell the truth? Are you known only for telling the truth? What about righteousness? Does your own righteousness cover you? Does it cover you? Does it cover your chest like a breastplate? Can I tell you that if you claim Jesus Christ and yet live in lies and unrighteousness, you will be found out. And I tell you, repent. Spiritual warfare demands truth and righteousness. It demands the stability of feet covered in the knowledge of the gospel of peace and the full exercise of our faith, which is a shield, protecting us from Satan's fiery arrows. However, our spiritual warfare armor is incomplete, as any good soldier would know, if you do not pick up the helmet that was made for your warfare and put it on your head. Which brings us to the fifth of six assets 
of God's armor in our notes. Verse 17, number five in your notes, the helmet of salvation. The first point we'll discuss today, but it is number five in your notes, the helmet of salvation, the fifth of six assets of God's armor. You see there in the text, as Paul says in chapter 6, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. Let's talk about this verb first, the verb dekomai in the Greek, which means to receive, to take, to grasp, to grab hold of. Dekomai is in the middle voice, which means that you, Christian, are responsible for taking it up, for putting it on. There's self-interest in the middle voice. This one verb, dekomai, it governs both of the assets here in verse 17. You are responsible to take the helmet of salvation and to take, receive, grab the sword of the Spirit. Turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll look at verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 2. Because what I want to do here is to explore this verb, dekomai, for a moment. What does it mean to take or receive or grasp? Question for you. Is taking a primary action in the way that it comes first or a secondary action in the way that it comes in response to a primary action? What about this idea of dekomai in the way of receiving? Is it a response action, receiving, or is it a primary action, receiving? If you are receiving, isn't someone already in the position of giving? If you are taking, hasn't someone already supplied? Consider this with me and stay, stay with me in the verb dekomai for a moment, which means to take, to receive, to grasp. Stay with me here. Because I believe that dekomai, to take, to receive, I believe that it gets misused and abused in our contemporary English. How many people explain their salvation by saying, quote, I received Jesus into my heart when I was at camp. How many people say, I accepted Jesus into my life when I listened to the preacher on TV. How many people say, I took Jesus as my Savior in 1985, as if they were performing a primary action? Many, many people in our world do this very thing. What's the problem with these comments? Do men choose salvation? No, men don't choose salvation. Salvation is a free gift given by God. To say that you receive salvation is accurate, but it misses this far superior reality. God gave you salvation. That's why you received it. God gave it to you. Receiving, you see, is secondary. What's primary? Giving. The supply. Jesus took your name, if you're saved. He took your name to that cross. And your sins he personally died for on that cross. Jesus did not satisfy the wrath of God against the sins of every man on the face of the earth. That's not what happened at that cross. If that's what happened at that cross, then he's somebody's savior, but he's not their redeemer. Do you see a problem with that? If he saved everybody on that cross and paid for everyone's sins, actually atoned, actually redeemed, actually saved, then every man would go to heaven. You believe in hell though, right? 
You know the guys like Kermit Gosnell, who murdered a whole bunch of babies with abortion? You know he's going to hell, right? Jesus only atoned for the sins of the elect. He only redeemed the predestined. Jesus didn't die to make men savable. That cross is not about making men savable. Jesus actually died to save people. He is a savior and a redeemer. And a redeemer. No one will ever be able to say, no one will ever be able to say, Jesus paid for my sins, but he failed to redeem me. So who can receive salvation? Who can receive it? Only those to whom it is given. Receiving must never be divorced or allowed to supersede the giving that comes before the receiving. And brothers and sisters, can I tell you, that is the beauty of salvation. That is the beauty of salvation. God gives salvation to all types of people. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be funny. You don't have to be a tea drinker. You don't have to be neat and clean and nice. You don't need to be any of those things. You don't need to be an attorney. You don't need to be a plumber. You don't, it doesn't matter where you've come from or what you've done. The salvation that God gives requires nothing of you. It's all of him. Somebody just said amen in their heart. He saves women who have aborted children, washing away the stain of their guilt and sin. God can, and I dare say that he has, even saved the preborn who are murdered in their mother's womb by so-called health care professionals at Planned Parenthood and other abortion mills in our country that were operational. And yes, brothers and sisters, God gives salvation in utero. You know that, right? You can just ask John the Baptist when you get to heaven. Ask him how it happened to him. You can read the account for yourself in Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Dekomai is the verb that I'm focused on, and I want to consider this again with you. Dekomai is a response verb. In order to take or receive, never forget. Something had to be given. And I beg you to think about this when you tell your testimony. What will you highlight? What you did or what God did to you? You think about that. Just like a wide receiver in football can only catch a football that is thrown to him, so too God chooses like a quarterback those to whom he passes out salvation. Only if the Lord Jesus Christ throws you the football do you stand even a chance to receive it. And the only way to receive or catch the salvation that Christ has thrown to you is if the power of the Holy Spirit has overcome you, overwhelmed you, and dominates your wicked, sinful heart that he washed and cleansed and changed, removed the stoneful heart and put in a heart of flesh. This is exactly what salvation is all about, and we see it in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, where you are at, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, where Paul says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God. Who do we thank? We thank God, not you for your salvation. We thank God. That when you received, which is decomai, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The Thessalonians didn't ask Paul to come and preach for them. Paul was sent by God as a preacher to them with a message for a rebellious people because God's elect were there. And God drew them, called them into that place to receive that message. 
in the exact same fashion that he has called and drawn you here to Community Bible Church. He preached, Paul did, and they understood by God's grace alone. And for this reason, Paul does not thank the Thessalonians for receiving faith, but he thanks God, who is the giver of faith. Turn your Bible to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10. I would have the opportunity now to remind you that John said, or sorry, Jesus said in John 6.44, John recorded this, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, God is the primary actor in salvation, and I love that. He draws, calls, elects, predestines, adopts, redeems, saves, I beg you, when you speak of your salvation, do so biblically. Highlight the fact that God authored your salvation. He gave it to you far more than the fact that you did something in the way of receiving. Did you receive it? Yes. Is it factual to say, I received the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, it is. But don't ever forget where that came from. That was a free gift that you received. This is the problem. This is a problem. Many people highlight the fact that their salvation was something that they received as if their action was primary. I call it basically Arminianism because that's what it is. It's a highlight of the fact that I did something over the fact that God did something. And that's a problem. It's a problem because it's too much pride. The, the heart is not filled with humility that says that I received at the expense that God actually gave. You're in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, where Jesus sets the boundaries on the heart conditions of those who receive the kingdom of God, which is the same way of saying that they receive or have come into and been recipients of, been given eternal life with Jesus. What does Jesus say in this text about decomai, about receiving eternal life with him? Mark chapter 10, verse 15. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, will not enter it at all. I believe that many men and women in our society, they come to Jesus and they accept him and receive him into their heart as an academic adventure. This text talks about receiving Christ with all humility like a father. I know nothing. He dumped into my heart everything that I ever needed. How many people have received the kingdom of God, have received salvation, on their own terms, full of pride. Many, many people have embraced a fake, phony, false, man-made salvation. Can I give you a few of the names of the fake and phony, false salvation that's out here in our community? You know them, the Roman Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's False Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, and how many people today in the Southern Baptist Convention have a false, fake, phony understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he places on them? The challenge for our finite little minds is seeing that we are not in control of salvation. God is in control of salvation. Isn't that a happy place to put salvation? Is in God's hands? You know, when you pray, I imagine you pray like a Calvinist. You pray along the lines of, Lord, crush my son's heart. He's been a rebel to you for years. Crush his heart. Do a supernatural work on him. When he rejects you, Father, crush him and make him believe in you. Right? Isn't that what you pray? That's what I pray. When you ask me to pray for someone in your family, that's how I pray. That God would do a work. I would never pray, Lord, save, save Michael. Let, let Michael. let Michael believe in you. Michael, Michael, believe in Jesus. 
Michael, just go to Jesus. Accept Jesus into your heart. I'm not going to pray to Michael. I'm going to pray that God does a supernatural work over the top of Michael's free will. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6, verse 37. John 6, verse 37. God's greatest glory is not in saving every single human being created on the face of the earth. And I want to say that again to you in case you missed it because I talk fast. What I said was this. God's greatest glory is not in saving every single human being created on the face of the earth. If his glory was that, then everyone would be saved. But that's not what's going to happen. God's greatest glory is directly tied to saving those people whose names he has written in the Lamb's book of life. That's his greatest glory. Not one more person than who's in the book of life, and not one less. These are the ones whom Jesus speaks of in John 6.37, where he says, in John 6.37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given to me, I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. Now in this text, Jesus confidently says, all that the Father has given me, I lose nothing because, friend, salvation is given by God and not at all tied to the supposed free will of men, as so many Christians would claim. If salvation were tied to the free will of men, Jesus cannot confidently say, I lose nothing. Because he has to wait patiently, like a gentleman, for you to decide and receive him and love him and choose to lavish him with your love. I praise the Lord that that is not the way that this happens. Salvation is tied to God's election and Jesus' claim makes perfect sense that he will lose nothing because God has given them, because they were chosen before the foundation of the world. And what the Lord places salvation on, you don't even have the ability to remove that salvation. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 59, verse 17. Isaiah 59, 17. Not only does Jesus hold the key to our eternal security, furthermore, he and the Father have supplied spiritual armor for the spiritual warfare that, we, that, that they, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, have elected for us to fight in for them and with them, right down to the helmet of salvation that we must take, decomai, take, receive, put on our own heads. I hope you never forget, you can only take up this helmet of salvation because it was first given and supplied to you. Don't ever forget that. How critical is it for the soldier to put his helmet on in battle? Consider Paul's word picture, this Roman soldier metaphor that he's got going on. Harold Honer says, in physical warfare, the helmet and the sword are the last two pieces the soldier takes up. The helmet, hot and uncomfortable, would be put on by a soldier only when he faced impending danger, says Harold Honer. He says further, in Roman times, the soldier's helmet generally was made from bronze, fitted over an iron skull cap lined with leather and cloth. Doesn't sound very comfortable, but it worked. Marcus Barth says, an inside lining of felt or sponge made the helmet bearable. Nothing short of an axe or a hammer could pierce a heavy helmet, and in some cases, a hinged visor was added as a frontal protection. The Greek word for helmet is perikaphalae. It is a compound word. It literally means around the head. Paul is saying to Christians, salvation protects 
your head. Knowledge of salvation protects your head. How vital to you is your head? It might be important then to know something about salvation and how salvation works, how salvation happens. How great is a helmet made out of salvation? You are in your Bibles at Isaiah 59, verse 17, where we are told by Isaiah that the Lord has a parakephalia, a helmet of salvation on his head. Why would Jesus put a helmet of salvation on his head? He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here's why. Because Jesus owns salvation. He's the author, creator, deliverer of salvation. It's his delight not only to wear it, but to bring it, to bring this salvation to us. Why does Jesus need to wear a helmet of salvation and bring salvation to Israel and to all of mankind? Because all of mankind and Israel are wicked, sinful to the core, full of iniquities, full of injustice. There's one thing that men don't do. You know what that is? Seek God. We don't seek God. We don't. We don't seek God. So he has to come. He has to act. He has to move first. Isaiah 59, verse 15 is where you're at. Halfway into the verse now the Lord saw, what did he see? He saw the vast wickedness in Israel that Isaiah confesses in chapter 59, verses 9 through 15. Now the Lord saw that vast wickedness, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Israel, God's chosen people, had no one to save themselves. All of humanity, for the last 6,500 years, we've had no one to save us, no one to save ourselves. And for this reason, the Lord always planned to bring salvation to us in his own strength, on his own terms. And brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. The gospel is this, all of humanity from creation at Adam and Eve when they rebelled in sin in Genesis 3, all of humanity was sunk into the depths of sin, wickedness, evil continually. We do not have the capacity to know God. We have the capacity to reject God continually in our wickedness, and our vanities. And then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left the glory of heaven to take upon himself human flesh, to live the perfect life which none of us have ever lived so that he could die a sacrificial death on the cross at Calvary, thereby securing the salvation that he and the Father had already designed in eternity past, even writing the names of those to whom they would apply the salvation into the book of life. Salvation then comes as a gift by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone because you're so sinful, you would have never made this choice to accept Jesus into your heart if it wasn't first given to you. Look at Isaiah 59, verse 20, where the Lord says, A Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit, which is upon you, and my word, my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor the mouth of your offspring, nor the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Salvation comes from God when by his Spirit he washes and cleanses us of all sin 
and then removes our heart of stone, implants a heart of flesh, and the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us, causing us to walk in God's statutes and keep his commandments. If it sounded like I quoted scripture, I did. It was Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. His spirit lives inside of us, allowing us to know the truth of his word and to obey him. God's salvation changes our very nature. The core of you is changed. That's what salvation does. It's not adding Jesus to your life like a name badge. Oh, he's a good guy. I'm one of you. I'm a Christian just like y'all. No, you're not. If you say you're a Christian but don't do it, you're far from Jesus. From wicked rebels to worshiping saints, that's the salvation change that happens with praises on our lips for him all the days of our lives. This is the life that we live. Life in him is good. It is so good. We need nothing else. We did not need the Supreme Court to reverse Roe v. Wade. We didn't need that. That's a blessing of God. We have everything we need in our scriptures because we are those who are in Christ. And in Christ, you have everything. So much so do you have everything that you share it with your kids, with your neighbors, to the people that you come into when you're at work. You share Christ everywhere you go in this life because there's nothing more that humanity needs than Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so we make the offer, and it goes out far and wide. But who will listen? Who has heard our report? Who will understand? Who will be given ears to hear? Only those to whom God gives grace. Since salvation is of God, what does it mean for us then to take up the helmet of salvation? How is salvation helpful to the most vulnerable part of our person, our head? What about salvation causes it to offer the best protection for our mind? Well, just as a good helmet covers the whole of your head, so too the full knowledge of salvation that Jesus has supplied gives cover to all of us in three specific areas that I want to address right now. We're given cover in our salvation all around our head. In number one, regrets from the past. And number two, discouragements in the present. And number three, doubts about the future. Regrets from the past, discouragements in the present, doubts about the future. When Satan attacks, he comes from one of these three angles full of temptations, temptations, regrets, discouragements, and doubts. Past, present, future. Temptations that you should not trust God's promises and you should not trust the salvation that he has said that he will deliver onto you, which is secure which holds you fast. He tempts you to think contrary to what Scripture says about the salvation that God supplies. But the helmet of salvation has you covered. The helmet of salvation has you covered. Turn in your Bibles to John 17, 24. John 17, 24. And for those who have received salvation, you know this helmet of salvation has you covered because you know that it comes with justification. Justification. Write that word down. Justification for past regrets. Justification is in an instant. God lets you know in an instant through his spirit that you are righteous in his sight regardless of what has gone on in the past. You're justified. You're not made perfect, but it's more like Romans 8.1 which says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as a result, you live in confidence and certainty that you have been given peace with God by God himself, regardless of your past sins, because he made you right with him, 
You didn't make yourself right with him. Far better than that, he made you right with him and put you in Christ. Sanctification is on this list. Discouragement in the present time must be confronted with the idea that we've been given sanctification. You have been and are being set apart for holiness and divine purposes by God. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, and you say this with him in your heart, don't you? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Every day I'm desiring to become more and more conformed to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then finally, as regards to doubts in the future, we look to glorification. Glorification. You have justification for the past, you have sanctification for the present, and you have glorification for the future. Glorification, what we all yearn for. Death is coming. It will seize upon you. But believers say with Paul in Philippians 1.21, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what gain is there in death, you would say? Gain in, is knowing and experiencing the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ to be with him in heaven forever. You're in John 17.24 where Jesus is praying to the Father. And Jesus asks his Father, with his disciples watching, he asks this, you know, after already saying, I do not pray for the world, after he already he said that. It's in the text. It's in the prayer. Jesus says, I pray for the ones you've chosen. I do not pray for the world. He says this, Father, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, these ones, that they be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The eternal plan, brothers and sisters, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is to have us share in their glory. Hallelujah. This is where your destiny is. This is where your future is. And this is the content of the helmet of salvation. The full knowledge of justification, sanctification for the present, and glorification for the future. Turning your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. John MacArthur says, Satan's most disturbing attack against believers is in tempting them to believe that they have lost or could lose their salvation. Few things are more paralyzing, unproductive, or miserable than insecurity about salvation, about being made right with God. Pastor John, he's, he's quoted as saying this one. I love to quote this thing that he had said. It's kind of funny. He says, if I could lose my salvation, I would. What's he saying? If I could lose my salvation, I would. What's he saying? I'm so sinful that if it was left up to me, I would lose my salvation. I would throw it away and walk away. That's how sinful I know I am. But this comment also is a very, very strong affirmation that that salvation that he has did not come from him. Where did his salvation come from? It's placed on him by God. We have regrets which the helmet of salvation covers. And the regrets are covered in the fact that at the moment that you were saved, you were justified and made eternally right in God's sight. Pastor John goes further and he says, Satan's plan is to cause believers to doubt God's promises, his power, his goodness, his truth, and above all, his willingness or ability to keep them saved. And these are present discouragements, which the helmet of salvation answers in the form of sanctification. 
Knowing salvation secures our sanctification. And Pastor John, he says, the helmet of salvation is the great hope of final salvation that gives us confidence and assurance that our present struggle with Satan will not last forever and we will be victorious in the end. Our helmet is the certain prospect of heaven, our ultimate salvation, he says. To the end of all of our doubts, we have glorification, which also is bound up in the helmet of salvation for those who know the helmet of salvation perfectly. You know it well. The helmet of salvation includes justification, sanctification, and glorification for the past, present, and the future. You're in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, where Paul tells Timothy that the knowledge of salvation has come, establishing justification, sanctification, and glorification. Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. This is our helmet of salvation, the knowledge of salvation, past, present, and future, which we find in Scripture, and we put it on our heads to protect us perfectly in spiritual warfare. I'd ask you to turn back in your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. I've told you in the past about the strength of the faith of missionary John Patton. John Patton served on the islands of the New Hebrides in the late 19th century. The New Hebrides were filled with cannibals. Heathens, pagans, godless men and women who were hostile to outsiders. The service to these islanders required John and his wife to wear the helmet of salvation every day. One night they were surrounded by dozens and dozens of villagers with torches, intent on burning down their mission station and killing them. What does wearing the helmet of salvation cause believers to do in such a harrowing situation? It causes believers in Jesus Christ to kneel and pray. And so they did. They kneeled and they prayed. They knelt down and they prayed through the night and ultimately the hostile island natives dispersed and they left them alone. Hmm. One year later, the chief of those attacking islanders was graciously saved by God. When John Patton spoke with this newly saved chief, he asked him about the night that the natives came to burn the mission statement, a station and kill them and then left. And the chief said, we were afraid of the men that you had with you. John asked, what men? And the chief said, there were a hundred tall men around the mission house that night. Their clothing shone with light and they had swords in their hand. We knew that they would never let us harm you and so we went back to our village. The Lord is our salvation, past, present, and future. Justification, sanctification, glorification. John Patton lived his life under the helmet of salvation, which he came to understand only through the hearing of the Word of God, which brings us to the second, in our notes, second point in our notes today. John Patton treasured God's Word as it saved his own life, and by presenting it to the natives, it saved thousands of people in the New Hebrides. Not only does the Word of God save lives, it is a sword that helps us win the spiritual fight against Satan in which we are engaged. We see this next in the text at verse 17, the sixth of six assets of God's armor. Point number two in your notes today, but you know it's point number six because we're in three weeks worth of study here. Number six in your notes then is the sword of the Spirit. 
verse 17, the sixth of six assets of God's armor. Number six, the sword of the Spirit. We come to the final asset in God's armor, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Roman soldiers were known to have two kinds of swords that they used in their warfare, the Romphea and the Machaira. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. The Romphea was the broadsword, often over three feet in length. It was used by men on horseback, cavalry men, who would wield in big strokes their sword and take aim at their enemy in general, be that a body blow or even to lop off the head or to crush the head in a single swing. This is not the sword that Paul has in mind here. Contrary to my own preferences for years and years, I always thought it was the big sword, right? It's not. Ephesians 6.17 has a different sword in mind. John MacArthur says, Scripture is, not, uh, scripture is not a broadsword. Scripture is not a broadsword to be waved indiscriminately, but it is a dagger to be used with great precision. Machaira is the Greek word here translated for sword, which is a dagger. Paul was thinking about this smaller sword, 6 to 18 inches in length, which was the primary weapon for the Roman foot soldier who would be engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Harold Honer says that this sword was admirably suited as a cut-and-thrust weapon for close-in work. Clint Arnold agrees, saying that the Machaira is the most commonly used sword in the ancient Greek-speaking world. This was the sword worn by Roman infantry, infantrymen. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 12, the Machaira, he says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any Machaira, two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the human heart. Turn back in your Bible to Ephesians 5.18. In our text this morning, Paul commands us to be ready for spiritual warfare with the only offensive weapon in our list being the sword of the Spirit. Spiritual armor requires that we hold onto the sword of the Spirit. This sword of the Spirit, this Machaira, we find that it's the same sword that was used when the men came in chapter 26 of Matthew to arrest Jesus. The Machaira is the same sword that Peter used to strike at Malchus's ear. But what is the sword of the Spirit? Spirit here can only mean the Holy Spirit, who Paul has referenced 11 times in this letter, most notably telling us in chapter 5, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. At chapter 4, verse 30, he told us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. In chapter 4, verse 3, he said, preserve, Christian, preserve the unity of the Spirit. And in chapter 2, verse 18, in Christ we have access in one Spirit to the Father. In chapter 1, you're told that the Holy Spirit is the one who seals you. And at chapter 6, verse 18, where we'll be next week, we are told to pray always in the Spirit. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Because any one of us would ask next, like little children, what is the sword of the Spirit, Paul? What is the sword of the Spirit? And in the text, Paul immediately answers the question by telling us, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. How, then, shall we think about the sword of the Spirit being the Word of God? What is the Word of God? How shall we understand the phrase, the Word of God, and the sword of the Spirit? We should all be very familiar with the opening lines of the Gospel of John, where the Apostle writes in John 1.1, where you are now, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the creator. That's what the text is saying. He goes on to say, John does, in John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And obviously, John is speaking here about Jesus. It could be no other. Jesus is the logos of God, the word of God. Jesus has come forth from the Father, out of heaven. And John goes on to explain in John 1:18 more of his reasoning for describing Jesus in these terms, the word logos, the word of God saying in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus has explained him. We'll turn over to John, John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 32, a little earlier than where we read before. John 6, 32. While you do, I, I want to quote for you Colossians, where Paul speaks of Jesus' deity, Jesus' understanding to be the Word of God. Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In verse 19 he says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians, we're told, For in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. The author of Hebrews joins the chorus of people who are testing to Christ's deity, to him being the full expression of God, the very word of God. Hebrews 1, 3, And Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does Jesus say about himself that might tie him together with the word of God? You're in John 6, verse 32. Where Jesus is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum, Jesus was tracked down by a crowd of 5,000 people who were miraculously fed bread and fish by Jesus just in the previous days. They came this time to receive more bread and more miracles. They wanted more. Gluttons they were. Jesus said to them in John 6.32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Listen carefully. He says in verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And he just described himself. And so they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. But they missed it. He was describing himself. And so he tells them very plainly. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Where did this come from? Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. I want to tie these thoughts together, and we'll do that if you turn to Deuteronomy 8, and we'll look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus here in John 6 is pleading with the crowd, saying to them, Can't you see? Don't you understand? You don't need physical food. You need spiritual food. You don't need food to eat. You need to feast on me. I'm God. Trust in me. Trust in my words. But the majority of the crowd of 5,000 in Capernaum, they didn't get it. 
They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And in John chapter 6, verse 66, John records, as a result of this not getting it, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. It was a very sad day. Here's what they didn't get. This is what they didn't understand. Not only has God personally spoken to man, and not only has God caused his word to be recorded by man, which we call the Bible, Scripture, moreover, God sent Jesus Christ to the earth to perfectly perform every command that Scripture ever laid out and live the perfect life that no one ever could, a life for which he should never die. And yet that's exactly what he chose to do was die because Jesus Christ is God. And he is the personification of the very word of God. And as a result, his sacrifice on that cross propitiated the wrath of God. He satisfied the wrath of God due against the sins of all those whose names are in the book of life. You're in Deuteronomy 8, where Moses is preaching his final sermons, his final words to Israel on the plains of Moab. They are about to enter the promised land under the leadership of General Joshua. Before they go into the land, Moses says to them with great certainty in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his command or not. By the way, who needed to learn there? God or Israel? They did, right? Verse 3, God humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do you see how it all ties together? Deuteronomy 8.3 ties all of these pieces together. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55, verse 8. Isaiah 55, verse 8. 700 years later, the nation Israel is crumbling. Their nation's crumbling, broken again, because they do not hear. They will not listen. They will not obey the word of the Lord. Their word, Shema, they won't do it. And the prophet Isaiah said to Isaiah, or said to Israel in Isaiah 40, verse 8, he said, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. We read that earlier. You're in Isaiah 55, verse 8. Isaiah 55, 8. Isaiah records the word of the Lord who said to them in verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your way, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. Earlier in the week, I had a chance to find myself studying by the Spokane River, walking and reading, and I marveled at the speed and the force and the strength of the water that was racing through our city. With how much more power and speed does the word of the Lord go forth and accomplish its goal than the rivers, the rushing rivers in the Spokane River Valley? How much accomplishment of eternal glory came from the life of Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4. James Boyce tells the story of a man named Emile Calliot. Emile Calliot. He's a French philosopher. As you turn to Matthew 4, I want to tell you the story of Emile Calliot. He was educated in naturalism, but felt that 
with this naturalism, something was missing from his life. And so James Boyce says that Emil, he came to think that he was really in need of a book that would understand him. He wanted a book to understand me. He was highly educated, but he knew of no such book that understood him. And so he determined to write a book for himself that would cause him to understand himself. And he did this by taking particular moving passages that he came across in his studies and collecting them and putting them into a book. And one day, with his work finished, his book for understanding me, he sat down under a tree and began reading the delightful, wonderful book that he had written. It was at that moment that a feeling of great disappointment crept over him. He suddenly realized that this book for understanding me didn't work because it was a book of his own making. The guy who was missing something in his life made a book to understand him. Emil Calliot had nothing to fight back against the regrets and the disappointments and the doubts that he had about life. He had nothing to fight back against the shame and the sin and the guilt that he felt in his own conscience. He had nothing to answer to all the vain temptations and snares and vanities of life. He had nothing. He was an empty tank of gas, you could say, when gas costs five twenty-five at the Maverick. We find just the opposite with Jesus in Matthew 4, don't we? Where Jesus is taken off into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, where he will be tempted by Satan just like Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. This time, however, Satan, the tempter, is no match for a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit able to wield the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, like a dagger, because he is God. Satan says to Jesus in Matthew 4, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said to him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Satan tried a second time and tempted Jesus, saying in verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan tried a third time to tempt Jesus, didn't he? Verse 8, Luke records, and the, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then the Lord Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Three times Satan tempted Jesus. Three times Jesus quoted the word of God. Three times Satan was defeated. Turning your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. James Montgomery Boyce says, If this Jesus, your Lord and Savior, had to know Scripture in order to resist Satan and win a victory over him, how much more do you and I need it for victory? According to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, says Boyce, you must know the specific sayings of Scripture. You must have them memorized if you are to resist and overcome Satan successfully. Perhaps a few great questions for you to consider as you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 would be these. Do you trust the Word of God? Do you believe that the Bible that you're holding is the very Word of God, Scripture? Is it always accurate, authoritative, inerrant, and infallible? Is it breathed out by God? Do you know it? Do you know how to wield it like a Roman soldier wields a dagger? Consider what Paul has to say about the Word of God in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Just for your appreciation of the context, Peter had just said in chapter 1, he said, Look, I was on the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured. You can read about it in Matthew 17. 
That was an awesome experience that I had. I had an experience, but it only lasted a moment. But the Word of God, I've been treasuring forever. We have it forever. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.20, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke of God. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. We'll close our time there. English evangelist and revivalist John Wesley is quoted to have said the, the following. He said, The Bible must have been written by God or by good men or bad men or good angels or bad angels. But bad men and bad angels would not write it because it condemns bad men and bad angels. And good men and good angels would not deceive by lying about its authority and claiming that God wrote it. And so the Bible must have been written as it claims to have been written by God who, by his Holy Spirit, inspired men to record his words using the human instrument to communicate his truth. We have a God that powerful. I'm reminded of Peter's confession when Jesus asked him and the other disciples in Matthew 16, 15, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered very correctly and he said this. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, do you remember what Jesus said? He said this, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, he revealed this to you. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we have been born into a living hope by the Spirit of the living God. And it makes perfect sense that to stay alive and adequately defend ourselves against Satan, that the Lord would give us his word and command us to take it up and use his word, which is a sword for us, in our spiritual warfare to battle Satan. You're in 617. The word in the text in 617 is not logos. It's the word rhema in Greek. It's, it, that's the word translated word, not logos. Both of these words, however, sh share the same object, which is God's revelation. And the difference is slight and simple to understand. Where rhema would be the sayings that come from the word of God, logos would be the full body of knowledge and content that is the word of God. You are holding in your hand the Bible. That is the logos. Rhema would be all the scripture that you have memorized and could recite at a moment's notice. How much scripture do you have memorized? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 11, your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you? Do you wield the word of God as quickly as you wield classic movie lines from movies for some of you like Nacho Libre? Brothers and sisters, spiritual warfare demands that the word of God dwell richly within you, that the word of God dwell richly within you. Earlier we discussed Emile Calliot, the French philosopher who made the book to understand me and was totally dejected when, he, when his book failed to encourage and strengthen him. His story does not end, however, in despair. There's a bright side to this story. At the very moment of his greatest distress, sitting under the tree, his wife showed up. Amen for wise. And she brought him a Bible. He had never seen a Bible in his life before, and they didn't even have one in their home, and there it was. She had found one earlier that morning when the Lord caused her to stumble upon a Huguenot chapel. Boyce says, James Boyce says, that Emile snatched up the book greedily and began to read it. Emile would later report, I read and read and read, now aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder, and suddenly the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that would understand me. The Lord was gracious to Emile, and later that same night, Emile was saved and repented and believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never 
never, never in your spiritual warfare let anyone ever dissuade you in regard to the truth of your salvation nor the truth of the authority of the word of God. You need them for spiritual warfare like a soldier needs a helmet and a sword. Father in heaven, it is our delight as brothers and sisters to arm up for battle, to put on our spiritual warfare armor and to do battle against Satan together. We need each other's encouragement and we need personal accountability and responsibility to take up the full armor of God. And I pray that my brothers and sisters here, having been encouraged by your word and comforted by it, would do just that, put on the full armor of God. We'll stand together and sing now in Christ's name, amen.